Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And welcome to the program, 833-482-5337 is the phone number if you want to join us on our late night national town hall. I hope that you will join us, 833-4-VALDEZ. Again, forgive my raspy voice, the allergies have beat the tar out of me. A uh, little bronchitis last week, and uh, this is the residual of that. So I appreciate your patience, but we're going to tackle these issues and break down the news of the day like we do every single day. And it's uh, really an honor to do it. All right, let's go. I want to talk about what happened earlier today because Biden's been making the rounds, right? Uh, from yesterday, from today, there was some breaking news earlier this morning. We have the Supreme Court deciding against affirmative action, which since its inception, just like Roe versus Wade, it's been controversial the entire time with people saying that is extra constitutional or unconstitutional. And today the court deciding, uh, yeah, that's right. We can't sit here and base this stuff on race. And that's it. And Biden coming out very sternly afterwards. And there's a few of uh, th these clips of Biden. I want you to hear a couple of them. But he really wanted to stress the idea that discrimination still exists in America. It's clip number four tonight. And he, he says it three times, which is so odd. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, I don't want you to forget this. Uh, you would think as president he would want to get to a place where we have less discrimination. And I don't believe that we can live in a world where we're devoid of, of sin, uh, right? And, and I think that's what that is. There's always going to be an evil nature. But here's Biden. The court says, quote, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an application's discussion of how race has affected his or her life. But it's, it's through, but be it through discrimination or inspiration or otherwise, end of quote. Because the truth is, we all know it, discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Today's decision does not change that. Yeah, uh, I, I wish there was a Supreme Court on any part of this planet that could change something like discrimination. 
But that's not something you can legislate, right? You can say it's wrong to do it legally, but you can't force people to be good, right? There's laws that say you can't kill people, but people kill people all the time. And that's the point that I'm making. So to suggest that somehow today's ruling uh, promotes discrimination, it's the exact opposite, right? Nobody's going to discriminate against anybody. The ones that are discriminated against the most have been Asian American students who culturally it's uh, their their cultural upbringing, their existence in life from when they're little kids is to to uh, be extremely successful academically and professionally. And not everybody has the same um, drive. Not everybody has the same cultural upbringing. So I think it's fair when somebody that is, I don't know, Korean, somebody that is um, from India that has this uh, Asian, South Asian upbringing focused on education, good for them if they have the best grades ever and they want to go to whatever school they want to go to. And, you know, uh, who am I to say that they shouldn't be able to go because they're not um, Hispanic or black? I didn't earn the spot that they earned. This has to be based on merit. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I think everybody here knows that. But somehow, some way, there are people that think that, you know what, you aren't good enough to do it on your own. So you need some sort of affirmative action. You need to be the, what they call the diversity hire, the token this or the token that. I think that's some of the most uh, racist and offensive stuff I've ever heard. It just is. And for Biden to uh, double down on that, it just, it, to me, it's just so telling of what he really thinks of minorities. Like, listen, you know, you could be successful, too, as long as we have affirmative action. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think plenty of people can succeed, irrespective of their race, irrespective of a lot of things. Anyway, that's that on that one. But he didn't stop there. He went on. He wants to now um, direct the Department of Education to examine the practices that hold back what he calls an inclusive student body. And, you know, this is one of those things that I find interesting. You know, maybe Joe Biden should go to a hospital. You just go to a hospital and ask the people that work there, especially when you see similarities, when you start seeing a lot of people from one part of the country and they all work in this field, say, hmm, or many of them work in this field, and ask them, what draws you to this field? I think he'll learn exactly what he's directing the Department of Education to do. Listen to Cut 5. Today, I'm directing the Department of Education to analyze what practices help build a more inclusive and diverse student bodies and what practices hold that back. Practices like legacy admissions and other systems <clears throat> expand privilege instead of opportunity. Colleges and universities should continue their commitment to support, retain, and graduate the first students and classes. You know, and companies, companies who are already realizing the value of diversity should not use this decision as an excuse to turn away from diversity either. We can't go backwards. You know, I know today's court decision is a severe disappointment to so many people, including me, but we cannot let the decision be a permanent setback for the country. We need to keep an open door of opportunities. The way you keep an open door of opportunities is by allowing people to succeed based on merit and not based on race. And that's exactly why when you talk about what makes things inclusive, I think we need to focus 
on merit and not inclusivity. Yes, there is strength in diversity. I think if you're in a group of people that come from different walks of life, different social backgrounds, different, different economic backgrounds, different uh, faith backgrounds, different everything, you're going to get different perspectives. You're also going to get, you know, a lot of uh, sidebar conversation and probably some disagreement. But my point is you will get a lot of perspective on a lot of things, things you may not have considered because you don't walk in those shoes. But what we can't do is place diversity above merit. If the job is to do 100 push-ups, you can't say, well, because this person had a very interesting experience because of their race growing up, you only have to do 50 push-ups. Or we give you, uh, you know, 75 for you because you're, you know, you, you had issues. It doesn't work that way. I don't know what world... It, it, it actually, that would work other than the United States for the last number of years when we used affirmative action. I'm glad it's over. It's definitely wrong. And, you know, it, it makes me think. When, when politicians are graded on poll numbers, they're not graded on whether they're black, white, or, or any other color. It's favorable, unfavorable, right? It's based on merit. It's based on achievement. This is why you see uh, El Trumpito and all this Magnus, the 45th president of these United States. You see him do relatively well in almost every poll, in every matchup against Biden. That's why you see Kamala Harris doing horribly bad, right? I mean, I think that the latest poll they have has a, a, a number that's so low, it broke the, the, the history, right? Broke the record for the historically lowest favorability or unfavorability, uh, lowest favorability, highest unfavorability number we've ever seen for a vice president. She's literally record-breaking, and it's not a good thing. I'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. What she so rightly has articulated, as I take away from her writing and the way I feel about it, is the disappointment is because this is now a moment where the court has not fully understand the importance of equal opportunity for the people of our country. This is literally the definition of equal opportunity. Everybody has the same shot right now. I don't know what's going on anymore in this country. Uh, You you have this landmark decision. They finally correct uh, a a decades-old wrong, and the vice president is all out of sorts. Of course, that's Vice President Kamala Harris, who I like to call que mala eres, which in Spanish means how bad she is. Vice President que mala eres uh, is the recipient of some very bad marks. Listen to this. She's got the worst vice presidential rating in NBC News polls history ever. NBC News said Harris's net, how's that, negative 17 rating was the lowest rating for a vice president in the history of its poll. Wow. Uh, this is... Uh, It's a first. And I want to break it down with our buddy. He's presidential historian and a friend of the program. Craig Shirley, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Rich. Thank you. uh, Thank you for asking me. Oh, you bet. Always a pleasure. 
And uh, I wanted to get your reaction to this because being that she's uh, making history here, not the type of history that you typically deal with, but history nonetheless. Uh, right. w- what's your initial reaction to this? My reaction is, is that uh, Joe Biden is in a, is in a pickle, uh, is that he needs uh, Kamala Harris uh, at the, to, to, to regain the nomination of the Democratic Party for the next contest. And he needs her at the convention to help produce a unified convention. But in the fall election, he's going to be dragging the anchor of her uh, terrible numbers. Uh, we've never seen this before in the history of the uh, vice presidency. Now, his numbers are, are almost as bad. He's at 35% approval and falling. So he's complicated by the fact, and, and he's already invited uh, primary challenges from uh, uh, RFK Jr. and uh, several other candidates. Uh, but so he's so he's already got he's already bedeviled by strong primary challenges, uh, which tend to, interestingly enough, candidates, incumbents, who have strong primary challenges tend to lose in the fall. And if they have a uh, they have a divided convention, then it really uh, spells almost doom for them. You think back over history, uh, is that the the, the the 1960 convention for the Republicans and the Democrats were extremely united. Everybody was behind Richard Nixon. Everybody was behind John Kennedy, uh, and that produced one of the most closest elections in American history. In the election of 2000, is that everybody was behind. Uh, George Bush, all the Republicans were behind George Bush, and in the Democratic Party, everybody was behind Al Gore. And guess what? It also produced one of the closest elections in American history, whereas uh, the, the Republicans were terribly divided in 1964, got slaughtered. The Democrats were terribly divided in 68, got slaughtered. Republicans were divided in 76. They didn't get slaughtered, but they still lost. Uh, the Republic, Democrats were divided in 19, uh, 1980. They lost, and, and, and down through history, a, 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 a presidential ticket, that, a presidential convention uh, that produces a unified convention tends to win in the fall, and a divided convention, that's really the first time the American people, because they're logical about these things, unlike, uh, say, you or I, about, about well, how we observe politics. American people pay attention to politics, really, when, it, when it's important. And usually that starts with the presidential campaign, and then really after the World Series is when they really start to focus on the election. But uh, candidates, uh, so the conventions... Uh, are, are very very tricky. Is you've got to you've got to, and she will help him produce a unified convention, the Democrats. But she's still an anchor uh, that he has to drag in the fall election against uh, whoever the Republican nominee is going to be. So she, he's really he, he's 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 damned if he does, and he's damned if he doesn't. Yeah. Well, this is interesting to me because I feel like Joe Biden is in everything you said is is valid. Uh, but I feel like he, he's in an interesting spot because I feel like a lot of Democrats don't even want him to run, but he's no. kind of the only shot because they have no bench. So what happens in a situation, a nightmare scenario like the one that you're discussing, where they, they have this fractured convention, what happens? Um, there's an old phrase in politics that says, 
I remember when it was applied to uh, Richard Nixon and uh, also applied to uh, Jimmy Carter in 1980. It was hold your nose and vote for uh, Carter. Hold your nose and vote for Richard Nixon. And that's what Democrats' attitude is going to be about Biden, is hold your nose and vote for Joe Biden, because there is no alternative. There is, there is no alternative. And now you're looking, facing the possibility of, uh, of a senator from West Virginia uh, maybe maybe running as an independent candidate. It would be very, very difficult to do, but still he would further weaken Biden, Biden's nomination and Biden's general election. Yeah, I, I think um, I think he is going to be a thorn in his side. Now, let's talk about yes. his campaign. Joe Manchin. I, meant, I meant to say Joe Manchin, yeah, but, that's, uh, but yeah, yes, he would be a thorn in his side, absolutely. So what what does the scenario look like if you've got um, if you've got Mansion you've got um, RFK RFK Jr. right um, right how how fractured does it get Oh uh, it can be it can be sent into a you know splinters it can be the Republican Party in 1964 with uh, the the the, the the bloodbath between Nelson Rockefeller, and I mean bloodbath between the nomination to get the nomination between Richard Nixon and uh, between uh, Barry Goldwater and Nelson Rockefeller, just uh, carried all the way to the convention. It was very, very div- divisive, and it, it, the party splintered into a thousand pieces. And it really needed a year before they could pick up the pieces, uh, before they could get their act together and start become a unified party once again. But you know that produced the landslide for uh, Lyndon Johnson. And of course, the part, the Democratic Party was badly divided uh, between uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, Ted Kennedy uh, in 1980, and again produced a landslide for the Republican nominee who had a unity and harmony convention really in Detroit. There was a little bit of a kerfluffle about uh, the co-vice presidency with Gerald Ford, but it didn't seem to really affect uh, people's attitude about the Republicans that year. Wow. Folks, we're on with Craig Shirley, political consultant and presidential historian. Now, Craig Shirley, uh, straight ahead, I want to continue our discussion with a couple of uh, news items uh, with respect to the first son, Hunter Biden. But before we get to that, uh, in addition to these political problems with Kamala's tanking numbers and her lowest ever approval rating or disapproval being the highest ever, what other, um, I guess, political landmines do you see coming for Joe Biden? Because I feel like while it is early, I don't see him doing much um, other than his Bidenomics speech yesterday to really try to hit the campaign trail or to to motivate any um, any constituencies, any a- any of the uh, the base that would be necessary for a robust campaign. Or am I looking I thought, for too I- much too soon? No, no, you're not. You're not at all. Is that there's so many landmines out there. You know, first of all, his attacking uh, Reaganomics. Uh, people have, when Reagan left office, he had a 73% approval rating. And people have very, very fond memories uh, or have heard very fond things about Ronald Reagan. Uh, he, he is regarded by many as one of our four greatest presidents alongside Washington, Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt. Because, as one liberal historian said, they they all freed or saved many, many people. And that's a pretty good criteria for an American president. I think the other good criteria is, do they leave the country better off or worse off? Reagan clearly left the country better off. And so for him to roll out his campaign attacking uh, Ronald Reagan and thus Reagan Democrats is not a smart move. 
All right, Craig Shirley, let's pause right there. We're coming right back with Craig Shirley, political consultant and historian. Don't go anywhere. It's Rich Valdez, America at Night. We're coming right back. Are you into weird, spooky, and strange history? Horrifying History tells you about the side of history that people don't normally talk about. We tell the tales of haunted places, infamous true crimes, unsolved mysteries, the paranormal, and then we look to history to see where the truth actually lies. Want to get spooky with us? Horrifying History, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. America starts the day with America in the morning. Pending home sales numbers, they tanked in April, but there Hi, are. Hi, I'm two John Trout, your host for the latest news, politics, entertainment, business, and weather. The octane action in the dust, a new film puts. Our staff of correspondents provide a fast paced look at the world with specialized reports from where news happens. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's Amazon. Concise, accurate, and fresh each day. America in the morning, the podcast, available wherever you listen. Well, thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. How many times have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. And as far as the president's involvement in that? So... That's kind of the crux of, of one of the issues here is that we weren't allowed to ask questions about dad. We weren't allowed to ask about the big guy. We weren't allowed to in, include uh, uh, certain names and document requests and search warrants. So, um, you know, we were precluded from following that line of questioning. Are you convinced, looking back at this now, that this was an effort to protect President Biden and his family? Uh, I mean... We were conducting an investigation of Hunter Biden, and we were trying to follow the normal process. We were trying to get to the bottom of it, and ultimately, you know, if it was going to lead to another individual, you know, we should follow that to uh, to determine what is actually happening. Um, but you know, there were definitely hindrances that I've never seen before in my 14 years concerning this investigation that didn't allow us to follow through an investigation of, uh, of, of, of any other individual to include President Biden. All right, so that's Gary Shapley. He's the IRS whistleblower. He was on Fox News. He's also been on 60 Minutes. You've heard him lately. And he's been talking about how he wasn't allowed to pursue the investigation that would have led to President Biden. And his, his, his answer to when they ask him, uh, do you, did you want to investigate President Biden? He said, no, but the facts said that we had to. And this was stopped. And it, it, I'm still amazed that, that we're, we haven't heard a single statement from any member of law enforcement saying, you know, we take these things seriously. We're going to look into it. Not a thing, not a word. Mum is the word. Our guest is Craig Shirley. Craig Shirley, a political consultant, a presidential historian. Um, when you hear this, uh, with respect to the Hunter Biden investigation that potentially could include President Biden. What do you think? It's a new world, uh, Rich. It, this is not 
uh, the FBI that we grew up in and admired for so many years. This is not the FBI that was uh, rooting out communist thugs in uh, America, that was rooting out uh, organized crime and the, 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 the mafia and things like that. This has now become a political unit. This now evolved into a political unit, like so many, uh, so much of the Washington bureaucracy, which is what you know the founders really were, were worried about: is that a concentration of power would lead to corruption, and we're witnessing it, witnessing it in real time: is that a concentration of power uh, leads to uh, leads to uh, corruption? You know, when I was when I was in high school and I wasn't falling asleep in uh, physics, <laughs> I remember the teacher saying. That power can neither be destroyed nor created; it can only be moved around. And from the time of the New Deal right up to the time of uh, Ronald Reagan, that the, uh, the power was was moving slowly but steadily away from the American people to Washington. So, th- so there was an imbalance. And then Reagan reversed the flow and sent it back to re- 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 reduce the power of Washington and sent it back to. Uh, back, back to the uh, people, that is now is reversed course again under uh, under Obama and under unfortunately the Bushes, both Bushes under Obama and under uh, and, uh, and under uh, Joe Biden, where the, the power now is is more residing in uh, in Washington, uh, and when you have you know absolute power leads to. Uh, the corruption it leads to corruption and the diminution of personal freedoms, and we see that every day. Every day, you're reading a story about uh, some new, uh, some new offense by the by the national government against an individual. Uh, so, some right taken away. Some you know, move you know, inviting somebody's home. Somebody uh, you know, all matter of things. Uh, offenses against the American people, and it's going to continue that way. And in fact, it's going to get worse as long as Washington accumulates more and more power, and there's less and less power for the states and localities and individuals. Now, Craig Shirley, I, I'm wondering, or I'm curious, I should say, what are your thoughts with respect to how the Hunter Biden factor plays out for Biden? Right. So I think he spent all of his time saying, my son, he's done He's done nothing wrong. Then a few weeks later uh, goes by and he says nothing because his son has literally agreed to take a plea deal to plead guilty to two crimes. So right, right. Uh, can he can he now say uh, my son's done nothing wrong? I'm pretty sure. No. So now he says he's the smartest no, guy. Can't, no. he can't say that. I can't say that. Can he? <laughs> can't say you. Well, oops, I was wrong. My son is a thug and a crook. Um, he, he has been spreading around uh, influence money around the family, and uh, by the way, he's been spreading it around my direction too. Um, mm-hmm. the, I don't think there's any way to PR this thing. I really, really don't. Rich is it, the, 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 the only the only hope he has is that it, this this is going to blow over. Then uh, uh, Republicans, uh, uh, you know. Hopefully, the, you know, they'll count on the Republicans not to make, try to revive this issue. And the national media, of course, will sweep it under the rug, as they have for every scandal against the uh, Democrats for the last several years. That's the other thing that has really changed in America. You know, when the founders and framers were crafted in the Constitution in September of 1787, uh, 
the First Amendment is clear, you know, that personal rights is the freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of petition your government. Um, but oddly jammed in there, it doesn't really fit in there, but oddly jammed in there is freedom of the press. We always refer to the First Amendment as freedom of the press, overlooking the fact that there are many other important freedoms in the First Amendment. But mm-hmm. the press always makes the First Amendment about, about the press and ignores the others. Um, and it's not that the the founders and framers liked the pamphleteers and the broadsheets of the time. They despised them. They hated them. It, 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 but but they saw the press at the time as a valuable ally of the American people against their government, an important ally. And it worked for 200 years. You know, John Adams imprisoned newspaper editors who uh, who uh, displeased him, who were later freed under the repeal of the uh, Sedition Acts under uh, under Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Abraham Lincoln imprisoned uh, editors who displeased him during... Um, uh, mm-hmm. During the Civil War, uh, the Civil War. And, and Woodrow Wilson uh, uh, moved against uh, newspaper editors who displeased him. FDR complained about newspaper editors, complained about John McCormick and the uh, Chicago Tribune, and uh, Kennedy canceled the subscription of the of the New York Herald because he disagreed with his Republican editorial policy. But the fact is, is it worked? Is that, that as rough as it was, as ugly as it was? Is that it worked? Is that the newspaper editors were uh, were doing their job, holding holding the, the the elected officials' feet to the fire, and it worked down through until I would say about Obama, and then you saw a rapid change where uh, the press was no longer an ally of the American people, but instead an ally of the Washington bureaucracy. So you have mm-hmm. the Washington bureaucracy and the national media arrayed together against the American people. And that's a very, very dangerous situation. You know, this is just um, eerily similar to a conversation I had with uh, Carrie Lake uh, two nights ago, where she said she was making over a million bucks, seven-figure deal, being a TV news anchor, and she got disgusted after doing it for 30 years because it had gone away from everything you're just saying. That she said she had felt she'd become part and parcel of of this bigger uniparty system that they were just the mouthpiece uh, of these um, uh, political establishment types. I'm, and, I'm not surprised at all. And, and what what I think is is crazy is I don't know that we can turn back the hands of time. Do you? No, no, no. But we have to go forward. Well, you know, most republics do not survive the third century. Greece, Rome, France is on the fifth republic. Uh, the United Kingdom, after Oliver Cromwell, is that they all, all the republics collapsed after the third century. And I'm not sure, I like to think that America is a very special country, and it is a special country. It certainly was when I was born, you know, I was, when I was raised here. But I'm not sure that America is special enough to survive its third century. Is that we look all around us? Is that in every regard, economically, politically, uh, just stylistic, stylistically, or basic manners? You know, in a thousand different ways, I see the slow undoing of of, of America, of, of the exceptional, the exceptional American, and the exceptional America. Uh, and I think that we're headed toward. 
and I know this sounds crazy to some people, but believe it or not, we've we 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 have broken up before in our country. Not just the war between the states, but at other t- points in history is that states have moved away from the national government, if, if only for a time. And the, the Constitution is very very clear that any state can leave whenever they want. And I know it's crazy to think so now, but I don't think in 20 or 30 years from now it's going to be crazy to think. We're having serious discussions among serious people right now is that, is that can America survive with its 50 states or is it going to, is it going to break up into what I would, the short, my short answer, my short, short term, or my short, uh, um, uh, I can't think of the word. Answer. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. My short answer would be sane America and insane America. Yeah, Look, right. you, you already have parts of western Oregon that are trying to secede and join Idaho. Staten Island is trying to secede from, from New York State. Is that in, in, in many, many cases you have grassroots movements. Atlanta is trying to secede from the, from the state of Georgia. In many, many cases... Uh, around the country, you see grassroots movement to pushing for the, for the, uh, the secession of uh, various states and counties and localities from from the United States or from from their from their uh, from their state, their offending state. So I, I don't think it's. I know it sounds crazy now, but projecting into the future, looking twenty thirty, 30 years in the future, I don't think it's going to be so crazy. Is that is that and there'll be you know if there was a it was a breakup it would be you know the South Texas Ohio Idaho would be uh, one would be one would be sane America and insane America would be New England you know New York uh, the West, Illinois and the West Coast and it's so it's a balkanization but we we've had balkanized countries. For years around the globe, and they survived just fine. So it's broken up. So what? Is that we'd have a mutual defense treaty, and we'd have trade agreements and travel agreements and things like that. But I, I think it is absolutely possible that there is no unifying glue anymore. There's no national purpose. Well, there like- needs to be. Craig Shirley, let's pick up on that thread as soon as we come back. I got to take a quick pause right here, folks. We're on with Craig Shirley. It's Rich Valdez. Eight three three four eight two five three three seven. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. He's brown, he's bald, and he's breaking it down. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. I am here with Craig Shirley, presidential historian, political consultant. And uh, we were just discussing uh, his thoughts on how we are lacking the glue that held America together as a fabric. And uh, it's disheartening to hear that. But uh, a good part of that is is a reality that many of us are living. Craig Shirley, let's pick up where you left off. Sure. But, you know, you think about it, Rich, down through the 250 years there were always things that held us together, whether it was Manifest Destiny or whether it was World War, uh, the Spanish-American War or World War One, or the Great Depression or uh, World War Two. certainly. I mean, we were totally united in World War Two. 
uh, or the space race, mm-hmm. uh, or for a time Vietnam. We re- later became divided over Vietnam, but we were pretty united uh, in the in the early in, to mid '60s uh, to, in the support of the Vietnam War. Um, is that even COVID could have been a unifying? Uh, issue, could have, could have, but but mm. it quickly descended into after nine eleven. We were united for at least a sure. short time, uh, but, but you know we we fell to d- d- disagreeing among ourselves over union contracts and things like that. Um, and it, it, COVID could have been a national unifying issue, but um, you know, but one side wouldn't allow the other side to say who and why uh, it was it was created. Uh, by the communist Chinese, by the red Chinese, you know, to, uh, to spread mayhem in, in America and to create discord in America and, and to kill American citizens, you know, even though it was obviously true, uh, is that one side was screamed racism, 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 uh, and that really clamped down on the other side. So, so, it's, so it is almost impossible to make it a, a unifying issue. So we don't have any unifying issues today. We certainly don't uh, after the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action. There's there's one set of rational Americans who say, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's long past due. We need we need a colorblind society. Uh, and the other side, no, no, no. And, and under the guise of, uh, of you know helping people, that what they really want is preferential treatment. Uh, for certain segments of society, so you got you'll never have those two those sides. One side saying colorblind, the other side saying preferential treatment or advocating preferential treatment, uh, ever ever agreeing on anything. So we, all we we have divided elections always. We you know I remember because I worked on the '84 uh, Reagan campaign mm-hmm. and Reagan won in a landslide. My God, it was uh, it was uh, he got over he got well over sixty percent. Took forty nine states against Mondale, and even even Minnesota, uh, you know, Mondale only carried it. You know, he voted graveyards up there in Minnesota. And I think <laughs> I think he carried it by six thousand by six thousand votes. So, uh, and it could have if they had done a recount, he, Reagan uh, uh, could have won. But you know, they they went to the president, they went to Reagan, and said, "Mr. President, you know, we could get a, have a fifty state sweep if we did a recount in Minnesota." And Reagan said, "No, let no." no let Mondale have it. You know, so um, exhibiting a type of charity that you really don't see uh, very much in politics anymore. Um, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, Rich, I'm kind of meandering, I suppose. But the fact is, is that we, we live in a very, very, I get you know this, obviously, because you're running a national focus group every day, every, every day, mm-hmm. every evening. Uh, it's a very, very divided country. You know, it is. And you said something that there's an uh, there's the absence of a national issue. And as you right. said it in my brain, I thought that's true. But to me, what's more obvious for me is that we have several divisive or divisive, however you like to say it, national issues like the ones you mentioned, yes. racism and gender and all these yes. things that have been ripping apart the fabric of America for yes. year after year after year. Uh, Craig Shirley, I meant to, to, I didn't want to keep you this long, but can you hang on another minute or two because I want to wrap up with you and we got to take a pause. Sure, love to. All right. Folks, we're coming right back with Craig Shirley, 833-482-5337. It's Rich Valdez, America at Night. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. 
All right, folks, our guest is Craig Shirley. Now, Craig Shirley, uh, before we wrap everything up, I want everybody to have an opportunity to keep up to speed with all of the great work that you do. I know you've always got um, uh, different literary projects going on. Tell us what's going on and how we can find it. I am just wrapping up my sixth book on Ronald Reagan. The title of this one, the working title, is The Search for Reagan. Uh, and I got the idea, the title, I got the idea from a, a book about Winston Churchill. And this is an exploration of Reagan on a lot of issues that are, that are a lot of false material about him, about, about welfare queens and where he began his 1980 campaign. And you know, Hillary Clinton wrote in her book that Reagan started his 1980 campaign at the Shoba County Fair in Mississippi, which is utterly untrue. He started at Liberty State Park in New Jersey. In Jersey, Jersey City, New Jersey. Yeah, exactly, yes, yep. exactly. Across Some the of bay my from, political mentors were there, and I've seen the pictures. Yes, right. So, but the the left constantly lies about this. It was right across from the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, so, so Reagan and AIDS, Reagan and homosexuals, Reagan and, and you know, so refuting a lot of the lies about Ronald Reagan uh, and showing uh, this, this deeply compassionate man. Craig Shirley, it's always an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. We always learn a lot, uh, folks. Give him a follow. Check out the latest book once it comes out. Uh, finding Reagan and Craig Shirley. I want to thank you for being here. You're a patriot. Thank you, Rich, very, very much. Have a you good bet. Board. There's more to come. Straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late-night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Your liberty-loving Latino amigo, happy to be here with you, and uh, welcome to the conversation. If you want to join us, 833-482-5337 is the phone number, 833-4-VALDEZ, if you want to chime in, or you could always get us online at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Now, a couple of things. Huge decision, huge, as El Trumpito would say, huge decision that came out of the, um, the Supreme Court today uh, affirming the ban on um, uh, affirmative action. And that was a big deal, um, something that needed to stop a long time ago, in my opinion. And that was um, the, the case today. A lot of people up in arms. Joe Biden had lots to say about it. He was very, um, very, very upset with the decision but uh, constantly making references to discrimination, discrimination not being over in America. It, it just, it was uh, quite the spectacle, his speech. But lo and behold, that is now uh, the law of the land. Merit has, has presided and succeeded uh, in, in the face of favoritism, right? Because that's really what it was, we, picking and choosing who gets the preferential treatment. So that's done. Then we've got President, Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence, 
former Vice President Mike Pence visited current President Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine. And uh, nobody knew that was going to happen. And if I find it interesting, I was very critical when Barack Obama ran for president and he was campaigning in, I think it was Berlin in Germany. Um, and now I'm thinking, is this how we campaign for president now in the United States by, by uh, making a trip to the Ukraine? Uh, or I should say just Ukraine. Somebody will call and correct me. But I don't know. I don't think it bodes well for him, honestly. I, I, don't, I honestly don't know. I think people are going to say he, we've seen more of Mike Pence on the ground in Ukraine than we've seen of him in the United States. And while that may not be true, I think that's going to be the perception. But we shall see how that goes. And uh, there's some other news with respect to um, fentanyl coming across the border. Governor Ron DeSantis uh, had some choice words about that. Listen to this. All options are on the table to defend the American people. People are dying by the tens of thousands because of the fentanyl that's trafficked in. And yet we talk a lot about the porous border, and it is very porous, and it's sad, and there's vast expanses where there's no wall, no barrier. We're going to obviously build the wall and do that. But what I've seen in my trips down there, and I've taken a number of them, the cartels will actually cut through the good part of the border wall like a blowtorch or a saw, they have backpacks on, they run in the drugs. So my view as commander in chief would be is we have to have appropriate rules of engagement to say if you're cutting through a border wall on sovereign U.S. territory and you're trying to poison Americans, uh, you're going to end up stone cold dead. We are not going to put up with this. And there you go. Governor Ron DeSantis campaigning and making his case for why we have to clamp down on illegal immigration in particular to stop the flow of drugs coming into the country. And, you know, drugs are a big deal because while we hear the the ugly side of things all the time, and I'm talking about when we hear about a teenager or a, an infant that came in contact with fentanyl or something like that, uh, these are these are horrible stories and we hear way too many of them. But we don't hear about is the, the not so... Um, often told story of addiction, right? Where we, you know, we, we, it's alluded to every now and again, when we talk about Hunter Biden and his uh, ongoing battle and he seems to be better now and I'm glad he is, but we don't talk about addiction as much as we do. We had a caller that called in one time who uh, mentioned that they were addicted to fentanyl and was, and they were buying it on the street. And it was very eye opening for me is I didn't realize there were people that could be addicted to fentanyl. I thought it was that type of thing where you were trying to buy cocaine or trying to buy this or trying to buy a pill and it was fake or laced or this and that, and then you end up dead, right? Uh, what do I know? But there are people that seek out that drug and abuse that drug and are addicted to that drug, as there are many other drugs, because indeed addiction is a huge problem. And that's why I want to talk about addiction a little bit, because addiction is, is uh, an interesting thing. And so many people feel like they're hitting a brick wall when they're dealing with it. But there's a story in the New York Post that says that the prescription drug for weight loss and uh, the management of one's A1C, the hemoglobin A1C number, that's the internal number in your body that measures your blood glucose and whatnot, that Ozempic, uh, the, 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 like I said, diabetes management weight loss drug, could be an accidental treatment for addiction. And I found that to be very interesting. So I said, you know, let's find out with somebody that's in the field and, and learn a little bit more about that. Drew Dutton is the president and CEO of Phoenix House, Texas, um, uh, a center where um, 
they uh, deal with addiction issues. Drew Dutton, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. So um, let's start off with, um, I know that there's a, a big a big percentage of our population, I think it's about 20, uh, or excuse me, 10% or 29 and a half million people that are diagnosed with like alcoholism, but there's other addictions that people deal with. What do the numbers look like from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, you, you captured it. While we primarily see that alcohol use disorders are the, the majority, when we, when we lump everything in, we're talking about around 46 million Americans every year suffering with a, from a substance use disorder. And unfortunately, it's a number that's growing pretty rapidly. You know, I've been presenting on it for several years, and it was maybe only three, four years ago that it was about half that at 20 million Americans. So we've, we've seen the kind of national data double at pretty alarming rates in short periods of time. And uh, certainly the most fatal that we're seeing is opioids and specifically, you know, fentanyl, as, as you were talking about. And when, when you're dealing with this type of thing and you hear about uh, a, a new, uh, I guess, treatment alternative that uh, at least as this article suggests that Ozempic might um, not only work to curb people's appetites, but might also help with, with um, weaning them off of other drugs. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's two things. I mean, one, there's there's a clear need for additional support and additional resources. And we've had a lot of luck, especially with opioid use disorders, in utilizing different medications for various reasons to, to be helpful. You know, some uh, allow people to manage withdrawal symptoms, some help with cravings, uh, some provide kind of a tapered maintenance program. Um, some are helping treat, you know, uh, psychiatric or mental health issues alongside the addiction. And, you know, some medications like Narcan help treat when someone's experiencing an overdose. So, you know, the, the second part is if, if we're able to do the proper research for this medication and really validate, you know, what is a little bit anecdotal right now and, and show that we've got maybe another tool that we can add to the tool belt, that's going to be extremely valuable you know, in the fight against everything we're up against with addiction and opioids. Um, it, it sounds like it's very early stages, but if, if this turns out being something of great use, it's, it's certainly going to be really, really important to treatment efforts that, you know, that we're actively involved in as well. Yeah. And just for the audience's sake, um, this drug, Ozempic and Wegovi and Manjaro, they're all what they think they call them GLP-1 inhibitors, which affect the part of the brain that produces certain levels of, of impulse. And um, apparently this controls that along with controlling your insulin and blood sugar. And um, interestingly, it, it's helping people stop impulsive behavior, at least like you said, anecdotally. Um, I don't know if this is going to be the end-all, be-all of anything, but I think uh, the larger conversation at hand is how do we handle uh, addiction moving forward. And again, you're on the front lines of that. So I want you to answer that question on the other side of this break. Folks, we're on with Drew Dutton. He's from Phoenix House, Texas. Our telephone number, 833-482-5337. We'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833 482 5337 833 4 Valdez. That's Valdez with an S. 
America, this is Night. This is Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're on with Drew Dutton. He is uh, the CEO of Phoenix House, Texas, a um, treatment facility for addictions. And Drew Dutton, what made you get into that line of work? Sure. So uh, addiction was something actually that I dealt with uh, as an adolescent. Uh, it was something that had a big impact on me kind of starting in middle school. And then I wound up uh, accessing treatment uh, a, a few times actually throughout kind of my childhood and found recovery and was able to maintain sobriety. So for what's been 19 years now and that, you know, process. Yeah. Thank you. Has, you know, changed the trajectory of my life in so many ways. And that's, I've been really passionate about wanting to work with addiction and trying to create similar spaces and opportunities for everyone else. And that's why I've been particularly focused on youth and adolescents, because I just, I think we can have such a meaningful impact when we are able to do those interventions in kind of early stages uh, and before a lot of the you know, negative effects can really take a toll and what's now become very, you know, fatal effects for people. What made you, um, obviously you dealt with addiction. What made you, uh, it, was it really your, um, your experience? Uh, was it like a good experience or a bad experience leaving addiction behind you that really, uh, inspired the future and creating Phoenix house? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was a lot of my own personal experience. You know, I was a, I was a big believer in, in treatment and recovery. Um, but I, you know, I also was exposed to some treatment centers that were not very effective and did not really have uh, good approaches. So I was very passionate about trying to build programs, um, that could be rooted in, in best practices for individuals and, and youth. And I think that while there's necessary interventions that are, you know, punitive and involved the criminal justice system on, you know, distribution sides. I, I think that it's, you know, an inappropriate approach for those that are trying to deal with substance use and really need access to treatment and resources and counseling. Um, and, we, and we've seen that shift happen. But, you know, for, for a really long time, addiction has been kind of one of those conditions that's just been so um, stigma, stigmatized and individuals have been kind of afraid to talk about it or seek help or be able to find help when it's needed. What was it for you that um, got you to that point where you realized, hey, this is it, I've, I've got a, a, what was the breakthrough moment in your success in leaving uh, your addiction behind? It was, it was really a lot of different, you know, things for me that, that just kind of stacked up together. You know, it was, it was a, you know, multi-year process of really, really working at it and, and working through different counseling and different programs. And, and a lot of things started to, you know, stack up. One was just, you know, being able to improve relationships with, with family and really mend a lot of those relationships with my mom and dad and really get a sense and understanding of, you know, um, just what they'd hoped, you know, for me and how they wanted to be supportive. And a lot of the ways that we just had kind of lost touch with one another and, um, uh, a lot of it was having access to really good teachers. You know, at school was something that I'd always avoided. I'd actually was a dropout at one point. And then um, just being able to get engaged by affected classroom teachers and people that really focused on the things I could do well and really helped build me up. And I just really started to enjoy it when I saw that I could be well in school and have good relationships and, and find some of these things I'd been pursuing through substance use through, through different means. It really caught on. Um, and just really changed everything for me. 
what were some of the the triggers or uh, I guess issues that that led you to to use or abuse substances to find relief? I think of a few reasons. I mean, part of it is, um, you know, just being exposed to it through the social group I was a part of. You know, it, it wasn't something I went out and saw it. It was something that I had a group of friends that were, you know, involved with at the time. And then I think it became something that helped with a lot of just depression and anxiety and different stressors that I was dealing with throughout childhood. And then it started, you know, what, what I couldn't see is that it was causing a lot of the things I was turning to it to try to use. The stress was now legal complications, conflict with family, conflict with others, um, starting to fail in school, uh, which were all results of the substance use, but then kind of turning back to it to try to solve the problems it was causing and kind of getting stuck in that, that pretty vicious cycle. And what would you say was um, what helped you the most um, in in your own recovery? I, I would say it's having a positive support system. You know, I have a, a family that I can really lean on. I have an incredibly supportive, you know, wife in my life, and we've been able to start a family together, um, have a, a wonderful son that I get to be the father to, and just an unbelievably supportive group of friends. Uh, and, and being able to work in the environment that I do through Phoenix House and kind of be able to see that change is just continues to provide really good motivation. But being able to have those resources when I do, you know, face challenges now, um, having something positive to to be able to turn to and lean on. And what's your, I guess, your best words of wisdom or what, what do you tell the people that are at Phoenix House, Texas? Uh, when, you know, when they're in a jam and they're coming to you for help, what's your best advice for them and those that are listening? You know, I, I think it's that recovery is possible. You know, I mean, that, that there's there's really no one that can be ruled out, you know, and if, if that's sharing my story or and a lot of times it's them hearing the stories of alumni or maybe staff that we have are in recovery, but being able to figure out what they want their story to, story to look like and what they'll be able to accomplish. I think that, you know, a lot of times people dealing with addiction have just been get, get stuck in systems or positions where people are just focused on everything they're not able to do and the things they're doing wrong and they're not focused on. So really trying to build an environment that emphasizes the strengths and resources that these individuals have and all the potential that's really there. And uh, for a lot of the kids we work with, we might be the you know first set of adults that have really emphasized that in them and, and focused on that with them. And we see a really powerful reaction and response when, you know, people are able to be in those supportive environments with people that really believe in them and their strengths. And we see incredible change take place when, when it does. Wow. Now let everybody know how they can learn about the work that you're doing at Phoenix house, Texas, and how they could follow you. Yeah, so you can reach out to us um, at contact at phoenixhousetx.org or go to our website, phoenixhousetx.org, um, or you can call us if you're you know, looking for options for support. We're happy to work with and provide resources to anyone that needs it. Our, our assessments, our treatment, all of the options and services that we provide are at no charge to families or individuals. Uh, and then we've got a number, 844-PH-TEXAS as well. Outstanding. Well, keep up the good work and congrats on your sobriety. And uh, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it as well. You bet. 
All right, folks, there is more to come straight ahead. We're going to continue our discussion, uh, our national discussion on all of the news that happened in the day. And we've got Independence Day coming up. And, of course, it wouldn't be appropriate if we didn't acknowledge uh, some of the American heroes out there. And one of them is going to join us straight ahead, Colonel Eric Booyer. I was going to say Bauer, but it's Buer. And uh, he's a retired Marine Corps colonel, and he's coming up next. Don't go anywhere. Valdez, who again will do a fine job, but I know you'll enjoy listening to him. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And the 4th of July is a day to celebrate and salute the greatness and loyalty and valor of the men and women who have defended our independence over two centuries. And it's time to honor the amazing men and women of the United States military as well. And one of those individuals is Colonel Eric Ferris Buer. No, no, I know it sounds like Ferris Bueller, but it's not. Colonel Buer is retired from the United States Marine Corps and flew the Cobra attack helicopter with uh, complete, with devastating firepower to our enemies. And it's my pleasure to welcome him to the program. Colonel, welcome. Rich, uh, thank you, and uh, thank you for your team for getting me on tonight. You bet. Now, uh, I know that you've written a book, Ghosts of Baghdad, the Marine Corps gunships on the opening days of the Iraq War, and I want to encourage everybody to check out the book and buy a copy for yourself and buy a copy to give away to somebody who would enjoy it. But I want to, I guess, start off with, um, you know, as the Independence Day is upon us, Tell us, um, what is Independence Day in your view? You know, Rich, it's, it's a, a great opportunity for all Americans to have a chance to reflect and, and think about our, our rich history, uh, think about where we've been, where we are, and where we want to go as a nation. And, and for me, having had the great fortune to serve in uniform for, for several years, it, it allows me an opportunity to think back of all the, all the people I've served with and uh, and just uh, in my own way, say thank you. So it's it's a great day for me. I always look forward to it. Now, Colonel, I know that um, you know I'm, I'm reading um, what I was sent here, and this is uh, interesting because I've never talked to anybody who's flown a Cobra attack helicopter. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about that and what your your service was like in terms of uh, being on the Cobra. So the Cobra is a it's a wonderful platform. You know, it's designed for what we call close air support. Uh, you're there to help support that Marine or soldier or, or sailor on the ground. And it, it took years of training, which I was very grateful for. Um, and after years of training, you know, you, you begin deploying and you deploy for me. I deployed throughout the world for years. Um, I think I was in my about 15 years of flying when uh, 2003 came, you know, about 18 months after 9-11, we were deployed to Iraq. And so, it's a tremendous, it's a privilege to fly it. It's a tremendous responsibility. Um, uh, but again, I, I, I love the idea that the mission is there to support those young men and women on the ground. It makes it very rewarding. Now, let's dive into the book, Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps Gunships on the Opening Days of the Iraq War. Um, what inspired you to write um, 
this particular book and why that title? So for me, it was a, it was a story I knew that needed to be told. Um, I needed to remember it. I, I didn't, I didn't want to let it go, you know, 30 years, 50 years, uh, and, and try to recall and recount it. And so quite selfishly, I reached out some, to some old friends and, uh, I had hundreds of hours of interviews, and that was probably one of the most rewarding parts of it. Uh, reconnecting with people, listening to their stories, you know, capturing their stories, understanding where they were at that time and place. Um, but the ghosts themselves are everywhere. I, I, you face them in aviation. Anyone who spent time flying at night, significant time flying at night, that uh, you know, nothing scars you deeper than a good dose of horror. And you know, flying at night is mm. is incre- it's incredibly dangerous. And, uh, and so we were always being chased. I felt in my whole career, I was always being chased by a ghost, uh, in one form or another. And by the time we got into sustained combat operations, um, you know, the ghost had morphed and it became something bigger than all of us probably ever thought imaginable, uh, almost an insurmountable kind of enemy we we're facing. So that, that was my motivation, uh, part of, a part of my motivation for the book. Um, and the, the title, as you read the book, you'll understand, uh, the reader will understand it. it. It'll follow me on that journey and they'll understand what the ghost of Baghdad means to me and, and probably means something to them as well. Now, I, I find the term uh, ghost interesting, right? Because, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not always friendly unless it's Casper, the friendly ghost. Uh, why did you choose ghosts and I guess, or maybe describe some of the ghosts that you uh, describe in the book? So, you know, just kind of imagine when you're flying, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you, you, you didn't always hear the door slam. Right. But sometimes you knew you weren't alone. And it's mm-hmm. those things that are in the back when you're flying, right. These, these sights and sounds that always have you second guessing what you're doing. Um, and it's again, incredibly unforgiving profiles we would fly. Um, but in the back of my mind, I knew there was something out there. Sometimes it's the weather, uh, the opening night we flew into it was a 50 year sandstorm. Uh, it's the weather and the winds and the environment that are fighting against you and combine that with a pretty agile and intelligent enemy who, uh, who, who wants to, you know, make you go away. So that, that drove me, uh, to something that's probably not always as easy to describe, uh, but something that's always present. And so uh, the ghosts really describe, you know, what we were facing. All right, folks, we're on with Colonel Eric Buer, retired from the United States Marine Corps. He's the author of Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps Gunships on the Opening Days of the Iraq War. That's his book. I recommend getting a couple of copies. Uh, he's with us for another segment, so stick with us. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. night with Rich Valdez. Call now 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 
833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. Our guest is Colonel Eric Ferris Buer, retired colonel from the United States Marine Corps. Now, Colonel, how did you get the nickname Ferris? Does it have anything to do with, like, Ferris Bueller from the movie? <laughs> Rich, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately for me, it, it, it kind of does. I I somehow found a way throughout most of my career to uh, avoid avoid trouble. Even though I, I was looking for it, I found clever ways of not ever Getting being caught. So I got out of it pretty effectively, uh, for the most part. Like, um so yeah, I, that was a name given to me as a young lieutenant, and it stuck. And uh, you know, I'd like to have a co- really cool call sign like Maverick or you know, uh, <laughs> the assassin. Or, but uh, you know, it doesn't work that way. You you get it, and you and you you keep it with pride. Yeah, no, I think it's terrific. It's actually one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, so <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was really um, it had to do with that, but I think that's cool. <clears throat> now speaking of movies, and forgive me, I'm uh, recovering from bronchitis, and my voice comes in and out, but. Um, speaking of movies, I think so many of us watch films that have to do with war, some even with respect to the Iraq war. And there's always a question in the back of one's mind is how accurate these things are. And, you know, in looking at the title of your book, uh, the ghosts of Baghdad, it it makes me think, you know, I've, I've never, well, I've, I've had that feeling that you mentioned about, you know, feeling like you're not alone. Um, it's never one I've had while flying a Cobra helicopter. So uh, I'm just wondering um, how realistic is what people are seeing in Hollywood to what you experienced uh, in your time? And Rich, that's a great question. You know, I, I, you know, I think I've seen a lot of movies and there's a lot of great movies and there's great action adventure. I think the movie that sticks to me is probably being the most realistic is, and it's for me, the aviation movie is Black Hawk Down. Um, mm. Having a chance to serve in Somalia, I call it pre-Black Hawk Down and post-Black Hawk Down. I mean, that movie really captures the essence of of the interaction between the ground forces and the aviation forces and, and the commitments pilots have to those soldiers on the ground. Um, I, I look at that as kind of the as the high watermark of of, of movies um, in modern combat. That's that's probably the best one I could really reference. Yeah, well, that one is. Uh... That's a tough one. Uh, if that's what it was like, you know, obviously uh, we, we always thank um, those that serve for their service. But uh, I'll thank you again because, I mean, that's a brutal, brutal depiction of what happened. I actually uh, met the general from Black Hawk Down years ago and heard some more stories and said, oh, my gosh, this is a tough line of work. And what made you as a kid or as a young adult decide, you know what, I'm going to become an officer in the United States Marine Corps? You know, it's, you know, I was in college. I was, I think I was 19 at the time and I was already thinking about what's next. And I, I ran into one of those silver tongue devils known as recruiters. And, uh, <laughs> they, they, they talked to me about things that I had a lot of interest in, uh, a sense of you know, teamwork and camaraderie. I'd been a, uh, been a pretty average athlete throughout college, but I, I enjoyed the team aspect of things. I, I enjoyed the challenges of it. And then, you know, once I once I got there, once I you know, once I walked through the gates of officer candidate school, I realized this was this was this was very serious business. These are very serious people that took it, uh, you know, their profession, 
to heart. And so they had me and they're like, well, we also fly and we, you know, we do a bunch of other things. So like, this is, this is exactly what I needed. And I didn't know how long I'd do it. Um, right. I, I thought it was, you know, great for me. And I, they trained me to fly and I enjoyed it. And, and time just went by every time I thought I was going to leave the service to, to, to chase another dream. It, another challenge came to me and I just, I couldn't walk away from it. And so uh, time went by and, and I don't regret a minute of it. And from the book, what is your favorite chapter or, or story from the book? Uh, this way listeners can really get a sense of it and go out and buy a copy. So there's, I don't really have one particular story. Um, there are so many days there, but I, I do talk about one day in particular. And I, I talked to, to this, to several groups mm-hmm. of people about any given Tuesday, it's any given day. So it's a Tuesday, the 1st of April and I'm, I'm launching out and my, my wingman breaks down and I, I join another flight for my squadron and the night's not gotten off well. And we land and, we get mortared and we get mortared and Marines are wounded and, wow. and we go off, we execute our mission. And it didn't seem that big, a big a deal at the time, but the, the pilot who came in and rescued him, I had a chance to talk to him years later and it was a big deal for him. And simultaneously, Jessica Lynch, who had been captured, she was captured by the Iraqis um, in the town of Nazaria. She was a U.S. army soldier mm-hmm. and special forces and went in and rescued her. They rescued her. On that same night, we didn't really know what was happening. Meanwhile, I'm fighting my own little internal, you know, friction to to, to, to stay upright and fly and and, uh, and support Marines that were uh, engaging enemy forces a little bit further to the north. And I landed that next morning, and I, I found that all these disparate things had happened, and I, I quickly realized that it was just a Tuesday, and <laughs> you have to be ready every single day. You know, it's, right. it, it's just another Tuesday, but you have to be most prepared when you're least prepared. Um, I, I don't know if that's really an overarching um, message I have here. The, the message I want to tell everybody is it's an otherwise closed door. You, you can open this unlocked door and step in the cockpit with me and my co-pilot with Matt and my, my wingman, uh, Buss and, and, and Ziggy, and, uh, and, and we take off and we go fly and you're with us. And uh, it's not my story. It, it's their story. It's it's my wingman story. It's other people's stories, but I, I have the privilege of, of telling it. You, you get to see the world through my lens and I take that very seriously. And so, um, I think they'll go to appreciate what every service member does, particularly when they're called to go to combat. It's, it's tremendously draining. It's physically, emotionally draining, uh, but it's incredibly rewarding and the camaraderie and the teamwork you may, you build there and the friendships you make, you know, they've, they've lasted, they'll last a lifetime. So Outstanding. that's what I hope I can do. Colonel Eric Ferris Buer, United States uh, Marine Corps, retired. Colonel, let everybody know where they can get the book and how they can keep up to speed with the work that you're doing. Thanks, Rich. You can, my website's simple. It's ericbuer.com. And on there, you can order the book through my publisher. You can order it through um, certainly through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, the major outlets and distributors. My website, I'll try to keep updated as much as I can. I have a professional Facebook page. We keep that updated um, as I as we go through this book. And uh, again, I've started my second book, uh, which kind of covers my next two tours in Iraq. Um, but the website's the best place to go. And then if you Google Ghost of Baghdad, it should pop right up. And, and, uh, and we'd love to hear from you. 
All right, folks, and that's Eric Buer, not Bueller like Ferris Bueller, but Buer, B-U-E-R, Eric, E-R-I-C, Buer, B-U-E-R.com. Colonel, I want to thank you for your time, for your service, uh, for sharing. Uh, sounds like a heck of a story. I'm going to get a copy of The Ghost of Baghdad, and I hope everybody else will, too. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Rich. And again, I appreciate it. Thank you to your team and your listeners. So long. Absolutely. All right, folks, more to come straight ahead. We're going to continue our discussion on everything we've been talking about tonight. Plus, at the top of the next hour, it's Open Phone America, time-tested tradition here on this program. And uh, we're going to be kicking that off. Uh, You could start now getting in line, and I'm happy to speak with you. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night. With Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. So listen to this. Sriracha, right? The hot sauce. There's a shortage of it. And prices are spiking up to $70 a bottle. Now, when I read that, I thought, this has to be the onion. This has to be the Babylon Bee. This can't be real life that people are paying $70 for a bottle of hot sauce. But that's what's being reported by Courtney Moore with uh, Fox 11 Los Angeles. Listen to this. Fans of sriracha sauce might have to find a new spice alternative. Continual chili supply disruptions are hampering production with one of the nation's leading sriracha sauce manufacturers for a second year in a row. Hui Fong Foods. Now, who would have thought that sriracha was produced by Hui Fong Foods? I would have thought it would have been like, you know, some Mexican company. Anyway, a California-based hot sauce company that supplies bottles of sriracha sauce to restaurants, grocery stores, and other food retailers throughout the country has been struggling to keep up with the demand while droughts in Mexico kill off essential pepper crops. Wow, I didn't know about that. Now, resellers on e-commerce platforms such as eBay and Amazon are filling in the gap with single bottles for exorbitant prices. Now, how much is it usually? Well, typically the 9, 17, and 20-ounce uh, bottles of Hui Fong Sriracha Chili Sauce retail for $5, according to listings from big box retailers like Walmart and Target. But it's sold out everywhere. Some of the recognizable green top bottles, which are colloquially referred to as Rooster Sauce in reference to the brand's Rooster logo, are being listed and sold for around $30 plus shipping, which includes the 9, 17, and 28-ounce bottles. Now, listen to this. At the time of the article, 
eBay was listing this as the nine ounce bottle for twenty seven bucks, the seventeen ounce two pack for fifty four dollars, and the twenty eight ounce two pack for seventy one ninety nine. That is insanity, absolute insanity. I mean, there's absolute no way I'm paying seventy dollars for a bottle of hot sauce. Or, I don't know, would you? Let me know. 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Get your calls in now, any topic, anything you want. It's Open Phone America, and it starts right after this. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and our telephone number if you want to join us on our late-night national town hall conversation. It's 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Now, the Supreme Court today decided that affirmative action was unconstitutional and ruled as such. The response has been tragic. Of course, everybody's crying a river over this because people are no longer going to be allowed to cut the line to go to college, right? In, in essence, or to get preferential treatment because of the color of their skin. Does that mean that if you're black or Hispanic or any other minority, uh, you're not going to be able to go to college? No, it doesn't. It just means that if you have that, you're going to have to compete with everybody else, the Asian kids, the white kids, everybody else, you're all competing at the same level. And may the best student win. What's wrong with a meritocracy? I don't know. But apparently something is wrong with it, and they have to um, put their thumb on the scale for certain people, and to me it's insulting. But Joe Biden uh, today says that he agrees with the dissent, and Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, issued a very strong dissent here uh, just, you know, kind of echoing that the fact that we're getting rid of affirmative action isn't a step towards equality amongst all races, but more so a step towards discrimination. And I don't understand how we're discriminating against anybody if everybody has the same opportunity. But I guess that was why originally they started affirmative action, because somebody felt like uh, I don't have the same opportunity if I come out of a rough neighborhood than the guy that comes out of the really nice neighborhood. And if his parents went to college and they've got, you know, lots of properties and lots of money in the bank versus the guy that lives in the projects or in a tiny apartment. Now, granted, you don't start in the same place, but that doesn't mean you can't finish in the same place. Uh, I guess their conventional wisdom says, well, obviously, if I start all the way down here, I need a leg up. I need a hand up. 
you know, I can't, I can't necessarily compete at that level. I disagree because we're talking about grades. We're talking about academics. Look at Dr. Ben Carson. Jeez. But anyway, here's Biden today at the White House saying he agrees with the dissent. The dissent states in today's decision, quote, rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress, end of quote. I agree with that statement from the dissent. From, from the dissent. <clears throat> the court has effectively ended affirmative action in college admissions. And I strongly, strongly disagree with the court's decision. Because affirmative action is so misunderstood, I want to be clear, make sure everybody's clear about what the law has been and what it has not been until today. Many people wrongly believe that affirmative action allows unqualified students, unqualified students to be admitted ahead of qualified students. This is not, this is not how college admissions work. Rather, colleges set out standards for admission, and every student, every student has to meet those standards. Then and only then, after first meeting the qualifications required by the school, do colleges look at other factors in addition to their grades, such as race. Oh, such as race. So, hold on, I'm brown. Does that help me have a better grade point average? Uh, listen, I'm not buying it, Joe Biden. He loves to make it up as he goes along. And sadly, somebody's going to listen to this and say, you know what? Well, the president just said it. So, obviously, you're lying, Rich Valdez, and you are not uh, being fair, and we should have affirmative action because that's the way to go. No, wrong, I disagree. Joe El Baboso Biden is a liar. Anyway, let us uh, go to the phones and see what you guys have to say about this. Let's go to Alex in Brooklyn, New York. Go right ahead, Alex. Hey, hey thanks so much for taking the call, Rich. Uh, there's a lot of fake crocodile tears going on with the leaders of the Democratic Party and the woke mob. But the truth is you do have some black folks that are actually upset about this because they're convinced that this is, you know, putting them back into the racist and white supremacist movement. The Democrats are definitely going to use this in their in the upcoming election. But the, the, they're crying. Uh, the outrage is for the wrong purposes. The real problem is, right, what they're focusing on is college or jumping the college. We've got to get the black folks into college. They're missing the boat because the the most important time of education for a child or for anybody growing up is, is from when you're zero to 16, when you're going to school. And the, a lot of black communities are in democratic states and cities where the school system is screwed up and they have a terrible education. And then they're wondering, why don't they qualify to get into the colleges? And it's thanks to the democratic corrupt system where they're not fixing the school system, no school choice. And they also have the other factor, which is People like Whoopi Goldberg on The View yelling out and telling black folks, don't try to be successful, right? You had the debacle with the Tim Scott where she said, you're the exception. Black people can be successful. So if you preach that to black kids that are in black communities with a failed education system, they don't even try to be good in, at their classes because you're telling them, don't even try. You won't be successful. Just get onto the marijuana and the dope and get onto government programs and vote for us. And, and then, I mean, obviously they won't do good when they get to take the cut exam and the interview to get in there when they apply. It, it's the democratic problem. It's, it, it's, it's that party that's not allowing them to get the right education to get into the colleges that they want to get into. It's not that the colleges are racist. Obviously, if you, I mean, it's a real question, right? People should have, why, why isn't, you got a third of the country is black. Why weren't the colleges third black? It's, it's just simply because of the failed education that they're getting and the kind of rhetoric and brainwashing that black folks that are young and even older are getting from the democratic corrupt system. Yeah, Alex, I, I think you brought up a lot there. And um, 
I agree in so much as the public school system, in especially in inner city neighborhoods, which are black, Hispanic, um, white, you name it, all sorts of races, but they they do suffer, and they do suffer at the hands of of typically Democrat politicians. I think that's very true, and that's why I got into education at the levels that I did, both in higher education and working as a, or serving as a, a school board member. And I can tell you that, to me, race isn't a, a factor in the equation. It really isn't. What what There's a lot of things that matter, but race isn't one of them. I think this is, race is not a permanent handicap for anybody. And and this is why I'm, I'm so grateful for today's ruling, because we get to move past that. But uh, again, back to your point, if you under-prepare someone or inadequately prepare someone at the public school level, of course they're not going to succeed later on. And if the only message they're hearing, and I'm not saying that's the only message, but if the only message they hear is, you know, uh, we're legalizing recreational marijuana, we're legalizing sex work, we're decriminalizing this and decriminalizing that, if you no longer have... Um, you know, a, a a felony charge if you steal up to $950 from your local, you know, um, pharmacy chain. Anybody that's in a destitute situation is going to see those things and say, oh, wow, well, then let me go over there and do what I've got to do because that's what everybody's doing and it doesn't seem to bother anybody. Now, again, irrespective of race, people are going to take advantage of wherever they see a loophole. And again, these are all programs and, and initiatives promoted by Democrats. So it, it's, a, it's a sad truth. It's an unfortunate situation that we see what we see. But it is a great victory, I think, today for people of color, uh, at least as a brown American, if I could say that, um, for Latinos and Hispanos all across the country. I think this is a great moment because now nobody will ever look at you when you go to Harvard. You know, today forward, when you say, you know, you, I went to Harvard or if you say, like, I, I went to NYU, uh, people aren't going to be so taken aback anymore because in the back of their head, they're thinking, oh, well, you went to NYU because, you know, they needed one more Puerto Rican guy or they needed one more this or one more that. Uh, gone are those days where people are going to minimize you and not have the same level of respect that they would have for someone else uh, based on those academic achievements. So kudos to the Supreme Court for getting it right today. Alex, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. And uh, when we come back, the rest of your calls... 833-482-5337. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Some of your former Senate colleagues on the Judiciary Committee would go as far as to say that it's anti-democratic. Do you agree with that? Well, you know, if I say it's anti-democratic, then it gets <laughs> in a lot of trouble. <laughs> no, 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 but, but it, it is, it's, its value system is different. And, and its, it's respect for institutions is different. 
And in that sense, it is, uh, it is not as embracing of, of all what I think. The, con- the Constitution says we hold these truths to be self All men and women are created equal, endowed by their creator. It's the uniqueness of America. We never fully lived up to it. We never walked away from it. And this court seems to say that, no, that's not always the case. The idea there's no right of privacy in the Constitution, giving states power, that we fought a war over in 1960. Um, you know, I, I just think it's, um, this is not your father's Republican Party. This is not your father's Republican Party, and the Supreme Court uh, is not embracing the Constitution. This is Joe Biden on with Nicole Wallace. She used to be on The View, by the way, just like Whoopi. And we got some Whoopi audio we're going to play shortly. Uh, but interesting, right, Joe Biden, he's just so upset when things go right for a change. And I guess, look, this is the game we play, right? I'm upset when he wins. I'm upset for the four years he's in office. And, and that's just how it goes. But lamentably, I think we have to be objective with some things, right? I mean, not everything can be a, a, a partisan... Uh, back and forth. At some point, there's got to be something that we all agree on. And that's kind of what we talked about earlier today with Craig Shirley. And if you missed any of our interviews tonight, you can always check them out at richvaldezamericaatnight.com, richvaldezamericaatnight.com. And uh, check them out and sign up for the podcast. Click subscribe. It means the world to me. But it's just fascinating how upset Biden is. He's really upset by this. And I don't know. I don't have the answer, but maybe Joseph in Manhattan listening on WFAS has the answer. Joseph, go right ahead, sir. Uh, yes, yeah, so good evening to you, Rich, uh, your office staff, and America Online. Um, awesome. Manic depression. Bye-bye, Joe Biden. No Camilla Harris. No way, no how. No communist. No socialist. Bye-bye, Joe Biden. So long, Camilla, too. Outstanding, Joseph. Now, did you compose that on your own, or do we have to give attribution to someone? My, 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 own, my own mind. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes, now, you know, it's a shame, Joseph, that, that we, we're really, you know, in a, in a time in life where we, we have a party, the Democrat Party, that is borrowing so much inspiration from communists and for so many people because it's not coming in the heavy hand of of a Mao Zedong or a Fidel Castro that they're like oh no that's fine no it's just socialism no it's just a good idea well you know the government it's okay to have big government why do you think people are so willing to accept what's clearly um, sympathizing to communism they're probably brainwashed I mean, mm-hmm. you, you know that, like the C, like the CIA, is communists invading America. <laughs> That's a scary thought. And, yeah, and also Washington D.C. That D.C.'s dirty criminals, uh, Democrat communists. <laughs> I love that. I got to write some of those down and use them on the radio. I make sure I'll give you some attribution, Joseph. Now um, you're in Manhattan. What's it like? Um, yes being anti-communist in Manhattan. It's it's terrible. Disgusting. I bet. I bet. Now, speaking of Manhattan, did you hear that your mayor in New York City 
He's demanding a certain level of respect, Eric Adams. He um, was asked by someone today, uh, cut number 25, he says that, well, the person asks him and says, hey, look, uh, you keep r- allowing rent to go up in in Long Island. They're not raising rent at this rate, but here two years in a row, rent control has been violated. And his response to her, Joseph, was off the wall. I want you to listen to this. Why in New York City? Okay, first, if you're going to ask a question, don't point at me and don't be disrespectful to me. I'm the mayor of this city and treat me with the respect I I deserve to be treated. I'm speaking to you as an adult. Don't stand in front like you're treating someone that's on the plantation that you own. Give me the respect I deserve and engage in the conversation up here in Washington Heights. Treat me with the same level of respect I treat you. So don't be pointing at me. Don't be disrespectful to me. Speak with me as an adult because I'm a grown man. I walked into this room as a grown man, and I'm going to walk out of this room as a grown man. I answered your question. <laughs> no, he didn't answer a question. You know, what's so funny here is, you know, when you're in, in some sort of public discourse, like I am, right? Yeah, a couple of nights ago, somebody called, said the, the rudest things to me. What am I going to do? Imagine if I said, excuse me, if you're going to call here, you're going to have, uh, you're going to be very polite and respect me and blah, blah, blah. I'm the host of this program. And how dare you? Don't ever talk to me like you're on a plantation. I would sound like such a clown if I said something like that. But here's Eric Adams being asked about rent control. His answer is that he's been aggrieved by a woman asking a question and he feels disrespected and reminding her that he's a grown man over and over and over again. Once his grown manness ad nauseum runs out, he just says, I answered your question, but you didn't answer anything, Joseph. No, I didn't answer it. What's going it's on crazy. with your mayor? He's taking, he's trying to take away our slices of pizza. He's trying <laughs> to close down the mom and pops, the mom and pops who are giving us the slices of pizza. And he wants us to be like a, a franchise store uh, pizza. That's ridiculous. Yeah, they want, they also want to stop the, uh, coal-fired ovens for the mom-and-pops and and, uh, fancy restaurants uh, because they're saying that you need a special filter because otherwise it would kill you. Uh, I can't think. Pizza, if pizza's killing people, it's not because of the coal-fired oven. It's because of cholesterol or something like that. It's definitely not that. Joseph, I want to thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening on WFAS out of New York City. And we're going to get to the rest of your calls straight ahead. Make sure you give us a call before it's too late or you can't get in. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ is the number. Or you can always chime in online uh, at Rich Valdez with an S. By the way, um, I mentioned a, a few days back that um, Talkers Magazine listed me as one of the 100 most important radio hosts in America uh, again, I'm, I'm honored by that. I put a social media post out today on all of my platforms to thank them. And uh, if you want to ha- get in on that or see what the, um, the whole thing looks like, feel free to check it out at Rich Valdez with an S. Plus, I'm going to be posting another picture uh, with somebody that I was with a little bit earlier tonight. Um, I guess I'll tease it. I won't tell you who it was. This way, um, you'll have to go and check it out at Rich Valdez with an S on all of the social media. But I'll give you a hint. He says the word huge. Anyway, uh, coming back straight ahead, your calls and more. Don't go anywhere. It's Valdez. It's America at night. 833-4-VALDEZ. We'll be right back. 
833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. So Whoopi Goldberg on The View, she was uh, running her mouth, flapping her gums on on the uh, topic of the day. And um, today was no um, different than other days. And, of course, we have some calls that are holding. I'm going to get to you momentarily. The phone number, 833-482-5337. But I wanted you to hear Whoopi Goldberg. Listen to this. I want to also sort of read something that Clarence Thomas apparently said. Oh, gosh. He doesn't know what diversity is. Oh. That's what he said. Yeah. And, and so he doesn't, he doesn't get it. Well, let me pose this question to you, Justice Thomas. Could your mother and father vote in this country? Because had the 14th Amendment actually had us on equal footing, they would have been able to vote. And you know why that changed? Because people got out and made it change. If we didn't have to, no one would do it. Who wants to get hit by water from a a water hose? Nobody. But that's what people did in order to get the vote. So when you say you don't know what diversity is, I say you're full of it. Okay. Now look. Whoopi. All I can tell you is this, and again, I'm not Clarence Thomas, but he is black, and he understands the black experience. Whoopi Goldberg has made a gazillion dollars on television and in film, and whatever her plight may be, she has done well and better than most Americans. So has Clarence Thomas. But they had a different path. All right, Clarence Thomas went through a... a horrific experience getting confirmed. Joe Biden put him through the ringer. Then there was Anita Hill, the false accusations. So for him to say, I don't know what diversity is, I understand that as a a tongue-in-cheek kind of comment because true diversity is, is not forced. It's real, right? I mean, that's just the bottom line to me. Whoopi is just out of control. But we continue with your calls. Let us go to Michael Pendleton, Oregon, K-U-M-A. Go right ahead. Yes, good evening, Rich. Uh, hey, good talking to you again. Uh, yes, sir, likewise. As usual. Thank you. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to say just uh, first, Rich, uh, I'm very happy to say this. I have a top three radio show host. You're number one. Number two is oh. Billy Cunningham, the great American. Oh, Third he's terrific. George Norrie. Coast to coast, uh, Mr. Nori, uh, all you guys are great, but Thank you're you. numero uno on my on my list. So I wanted to say Very that, kind. Rich. Uh, Why I was calling, uh, you know, Mr. Shirley, Greg Shirley, that you had, uh, oh, you yeah. always have great guests, and I appreciate that, Rich. Um, and he was mentioning, you know, about the division, of course, in the country, um, which is sad, but. Uh, you know, in Oregon, uh, living here in Oregon, I'm in eastern Oregon. Pendleton is we're a 15,000 population town, northeast Oregon, a uh, very nice town. And um, the thing is, we're we tend to be conservative. And um, so the thing is, there has been support for joining the state of Idaho in eastern Oregon. But my understanding is that it has to be approved by the Oregon leg- legislature the Idaho uh, state legislature, and then, uh, I believe, by Congress. 
So they'd have to go through those steps. But there is support here in Eastern Oregon for that. So, Michael, I'm just going to use the previous uh, audio clip as, as an example of, of what I want to say. So Whoopi Goldberg just said that she challenged uh, Clarence Thomas because his parents weren't able to vote until the 14th Amendment was passed. And that's the key there, right? It's the 14th Amendment, right? People have to actually pass. Uh, you can get an amendment passed. You just need to meet the numbers. And and this is a situation, same thing, right? If a part of a state wants to break off, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that it's going to be up to each respective governor to, to fight it, right? You know, um, I can't see Idaho saying, oh, my gosh, yes, we want um, – the, the eastern part of Oregon. Maybe they do. I could be wrong. But I know I've heard the governor of Oregon, uh, of Idaho speaking, and all he ever talks about is how, you know, please stop coming here. Everybody's coming here to get away from California and the crazy lefties, and we're running out of space. <laughs> so um, I, I'm sure it was tongue-in-cheek, but I'm sure there was a little bit of a serious tone to that too. Now, of course, if, if that's the move, that's the move. I, I think the fight is worthwhile to, to be had the other way rather than say, Hey, look, we're going to break off from there and join this other state. I say, fight the state you're in. Now I realize easy for me to say, but I do think it, it's a fight worth having. No, number one, number two, if you don't have that fight, then you go for it and you find, you know, if it can in fact be a thing. And if there's enough of a groundswell of support, yes, it will become a thing. Uh, I seen it happen, not at the state level, but in New Jersey, during the break, I was sharing this with um, Count Delacula in the control room that there was a town, there is a town in New Jersey called Patterson, not the best place. It's actually where they invented the Colt 45. Um, the Colt gun factory was in Patterson, as well as a bunch of silk mills and actually a very interesting place. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was mayor of the city of Patterson, by the way. So all that being said, um, we go now and say, okay, we want to break off from, from Oregon. You're probably going to have uh, the governor in Oregon fighting you. And the question is, will they accept you, right? Um, do they want you in the other state? So, and I'm sure you're going to school me on all of this. I'm just thinking it's a question of political will and public support. And if you have both, I think it makes it easier for you. Now, from what you've uh, experienced and what you're involved with, um, do you have both that blessing from Oregon to leave and that blessing to be welcomed by Idaho? Michael? Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't heard too much about Idaho's response on that, Rich, but um, my personal feeling, uh, and I appreciate that you let all the callers share their, their uh, views and their opinions, feelings. I appreciate that. Um, and uh, my feeling, uh, I've always loved the state of Oregon. It's a beautiful state, and I care about my fellow Oregonians and my fellow Americans. I would like us to remain a state. That is, you know, my personal wish uh, that we could work it, you know, work that out. You know, and and uh, you know, some of the local, our local leaders who are very good leaders, uh, county and and the eastern part of the state. Um, They've been skeptical if that would ever happen, you know, that actually breaking off, joining Idaho. <clears throat> um, but, you know, like you said, yeah, there there's going to be resistance, especially from the west side of the state, which is the more liberal side of Oregon. Um, you know, and it's I hope there's a way 
you know, everything can be worked out where we can remain a state. You know, that's that's my personal wish on that. Um, but yeah, I there has been support in Eastern Oregon, but I haven't I haven't really been up on how much support uh, in Idaho for right. you know, being okay with that. Yeah, so to me, it sounds like there's a girl that I like. I like her. The question is, does she like me? <laughs> and it's one of those things. Uh, I hope that, you know, it, it works out for you. Uh, but what I was saying about Patterson was Patterson eventually, like, kind of split off and became West Patterson. And it was known as West Patterson for quite a while until they they still, while that nicer section was able to enjoy a different lifestyle, they were never able to shake that patina of stigma of being Patterson. So even if it's just west of Patterson. So they eventually changed their name to Woodland Park. And now it's, you know, they've lost the stigma of Patterson. So shout out to everybody in Patterson and Woodland Park. But uh, I think that's part of what what uh, you might experience if this moves forward. Michael, thank you for your call. I appreciate you and your kind words. Folks, more on your comments and thoughts and your calls straight ahead, 833-482-5337. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. I want to listen to you, Rich, all the time. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, folks, if you're following me on Truth Social, I did post that picture I was telling you about. It's also on my Instagram story. I have yet to post it on the other platforms. I'll do that after the show. I'm at Rich Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez. Now, I want to, um, you know, occasionally, I was at a like a cocktail party earlier today, and occasionally I meet people and they're like, oh, I love your show. And I, and I love hearing, you know, great feedback. But they say, oh, you're so funny. And I think, look, I, I realize I have a sense of humor, but they'll say things like, you know, you should do stand up. And I'm thinking I should do stand up like Jerry Seinfeld does stand up. This is a funny man. I don't know that I'm that funny. I don't know that I could come up with like a routine that would be funny enough for stand up. You know, I don't even think I'm that funny, but th this is what I hear. And, and I think to myself, you know, humor is a tough game. Sometimes people say, you know, how do you do this three-hour radio show every day? And I think, man, sometimes three hours isn't enough. I have so much to say. However, the hardest job I can think of when it comes to the, you know, like in, in show business, I think is being a stand-up comic because you are, you are there. And if you're not funny, the people don't laugh, right? And, and that's, um, that's like a, a serious instant feedback that nobody else really has in their job at least from what I can think of in show business, you know, or in communications or whatever. And 
Dana Carvey is one funny guy, right? He used to play the church lady on Saturday Night Live. And, you know, Willie the Nance Bay issue, that guy. He's terrific. This guy is funny. And he's got a podcast now called Fly on the Wall. And uh, this week he was doing an impression of somebody I kind of sound like right now because my voice is so raspy. He kind of, you know, talking like a, who I like to call the Fauchista, the Fauchista, Anthony Fauci. And he does a pretty good Fauci impression of his own. Listen to this. I miss COVID. I know. Dude, you know what I knew? There was trouble <laughs> when anyone that came to our country didn't have to get a vaccine. And I go, mm-hmm. if you're telling me I can't go to work, but everyone, everyone coming in doesn't have to get one, I go, well, once we found out when Fauci said, okay, I'm sorry, but if you've had two boosters and two vaccines, you can get and give COVID to another guy who's had five vaccines and four boosters. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between a vaccine and a booster? I don't know. It's just more vaccine, but booster sounds better. Anyway, a guy with 25 vaccines would get and give COVID to another guy with 25 <laughs> vaccines. That's why I'm introducing the daily COVID shot. Every day you get a shot. By the time you get to your car, you got no immunity. But it's a beautiful 39 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is a uh, daily COVID shot. Of course, they're joking. But it makes you feel like sometimes, wow, what is going on in America these days? What is happening? The the way we've, um, I don't know, we've kind of just really slipped into a uh, a new place. And it was a gradual thing. But I just wonder, do we stay here or does it, you know, does it get worse? Uh, I hope it doesn't um, because really who can handle that? And just a quick um, cautionary note, the climate crazies, they're coming for ice cubes. Yep. Uh, First it was plastic bags, then plastic straws. As climate alarmists grew bolder, they began to come for gas stoves, dishwashers, air conditioners, gas furnaces, eventually even wood and coal-fired pizza ovens. But now the time may have come here in America where it's time to finally draw the line in the proverbial sand and declare it ends right here and now. You climate loons, this nonsense is over. And this is a piece by Mike Miller in redstate.com. Very interesting stuff here. Now, why do you ask? Well, I'll tell you. Because the climate, uh, (laughs) he calls them catastrophizers. I call them crazies. They're coming for ice cubes. And that means margaritas, Bloody Marys, bourbon on the rocks, whatever cocktail floats your boat, may soon become mere shadows of their formerly glorious ice-cold selves. Sarcasm aside, it's true. Ice in cocktails appears to be the latest target of the climate crazies. And if Scientific American, the magazine, has anything to say about it, our cocktails are never going to be the same. In an article titled, Climate-Friendly Cocktail Recipes Go Light on the Ice, the uh, haughty scientific journal argues that due to so-called anthropomorphic climate change, it's time to put an end to enjoyable amounts of ice In your favorite cocktail, listen to this. This is from Scientific American. For years, the hospitality industry has seen diners clamoring for foods that prioritize climate-friendly practices, such as local and seasonal ingredients that are grown and raised with carbon footprints in mind. Yet cocktail culture hasn't been hit with the same scrutiny. 
as the American West experiences water scarcity and energy prices remain volatile, the protocol for properly made cocktails doesn't look sustainable. Hmm. Is it possible to make satisfying cocktails without so much ice? Unbelievable. So, the climate crazies are now after ice because it's not environmentally friendly to have ice in your drink. I mean, this is a real thing. I will uh, share it on Twitter so you could read the article. Absolute insanity that this is where we are. Let me know your thoughts on this because maybe I'm just the one that's overreacting. I think this is lunacy. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Valdez. I don't want to vote for either one of them, Lawrence. Let me answer it flat out. You're not going to vote for either one of them. I don't want to vote for either one of them. But will because you Because neither vote for one them? of them are qualified, in my mind, to be president of the United States. We see Joe Biden out there. He, he doesn't look like he's even competent. And the bottom line is, how are we going to nominate someone who is under two sets of criminal charges now and still under investigation for two more? You know, we want to win this race. We're tired of losing That is uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie criticizing President Trump and President Biden, saying he would not vote for either one of them. But the debate rules indicate that if you take the debate stage, you have to agree ahead of time to say to uh, support and vote for that uh, candidate that wins the primary. And the question will become, is this a ploy to not attend the debate? Will Donald Trump even attend the debate himself? I don't know. All I can say is that, you know, I worked for Governor Chris Christie and his administration, and uh, I think he's a a competent politician. He was um, a very good governor in the first term and the second term. Uh, He wasn't a bad governor, but I think he didn't get as much of his um, priorities accomplished uh, because there was that derailment with Bridgegate. And ultimately, I'll say this. I'd love to see him and Trump debate I just know that this is a repeat of 2016 where he never had the, uh, the gravitas or enough, enough um, traction to compete with Trump at that level. I think you have to be polling at a certain percentage in order to qualify. I think that's going to be the case here again uh, because it's a crowded field and Trump is dominating it. Uh, at the um, speech that he gave tonight, he said they're 50 points ahead of some of their closest competitors. And the last poll I saw was 40 points ahead of DeSantis. So there's a lot. Anyway, I had a whole story I wanted to talk to you about a janitor. See what I mean? There's not enough time. 20 seconds to go. They're kicking me off the air right when my voice is starting to work a little bit. Anyway, thanks for putting up with my raspy voice. Hasta la próxima. Take care. Good night and God bless. I will join you guys again tomorrow. 
Until then, keep it locked right here on this station. I'm Rich Valdez. It's America at Night. Every story eventually comes to an end. This June, hear the final episode of Season 2 of the hit podcast series In the Red Clay, Durham. In the Red Clay tells the unbelievable true story of Billy Sunday Burt, the most dangerous man in Georgia history. In the podcast that people are calling riveting, incredibly moving, captivating, and addicting. Binge seasons one and two of In the Red Clay now, wherever you listen.